We're in Philippians chapter 3. Let's begin reading, if you would, at verse 1. He said, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you. To me, indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh. If any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things for Christ. All things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. We'll leave off reading there. And I want you to see that Paul brandishes his resume when someone else brings out theirs. He matches tit for tat. He said, I've got things that I could talk about as well. And he goes down the list and he says, I was circumcised the eighth day, which of course, the circumcision is that symbol of the covenant relationship between God and his people. You don't have to understand it. It was God's idea. God said, I want to do it. And it's a very special thing between God and the nation of Israel. He said, I came out of the stock of Israel. That was Abraham. He was the the very root of God's chosen people. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, the tribe of Benjamin, you think, well, it's a little tribe. And it was, but it was the sidekick of the most powerful tribe, Judah. In fact, we we see that uh, they had a reputation as warriors in the book of Judges. And it was from the tribe of Benjamin that the very first king of Israel showed up, Saul. And uh, they allied themselves with Judah, in fact, Uh, when the kingdom split in 930 B.C., Benjamin went with Judah, but they were so close together that you almost don't even realize it. They were counted as one tribe. They, They went with them, and they stayed with them. In fact, Benjamin's inheritance in the land was uh, included the most important piece of property in Israel, which was Jerusalem. So they were considered protectors of the holy city and of the king itself, himself. And so they had a lot of reason to be proud as a tribe. They were, they were loyal. He said, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. When you said that, you're basically saying... We always ride with the king. That's who we are. We, we never split off. We've always been there right with him. And then he said, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. So that means that he, he not only was he a Jew, his parents were Jew, and it, it, the, there was no mixed bloodline. There's no other races that ever got into our bloodline. You think you've met a racist? You haven't met a racist until you met a Hasidic Jew. Especially you go back to the Old Testament. They said, no, 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 no. 
We're God's chosen people. How do we know? God said it like a hundred times. We're really good. And you say, well, that, how could you? Hey, listen, that, that, when, when you have that much attention from the maker of the universe, you might be tempted to feel the same way. Which is also one of the reasons why it's so, so painful to God that they turned from him and they rejected his son. But uh, he says here, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and by the way, uh, the, the, what's, the city, what's the name of the city to which this book was sent, the book we're in here? Anybody remember? Philippi. It's not a trick question. I'm, I know a lot of times there are tw- trick questions that come across the plate, but that's not one. Philippi. It's, it's in, that's why it's called Philippians. These people were from Philippi. And in Philippi, there, it was a Greek city, but there were a lot of what they called Hellenistic Jews, uh, which were, you know, that, that Hela, Helena, uh, Hela, something like that. Um, you, others know better than I how to pronounce it, but it's referring to Greece. And, uh, and, and in that, there were a lot of folks who had been completely um, Greekified, if you will. Like it, that, the Greek city at that time was the height of beauty and of music um, and, and of art, architecture. Uh, and so as a result of that, there are a lot of Jews in that city, but they were Hellenistic Jews. They had been very influenced. And Paul saying here, um, yeah, I know you know Jews there in, in Philippi, but he said, I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews. We don't play around like Today, you have uh, Hebrews. Well, in fact, that's the next thing that he says, as touching the law, Pharisee. Okay, so everyone had the law, but Pharisees, where do the Pharisees come from? They weren't in the Old Testament. In fact, it was the best I can tell from trying to study this history. They came as a result of uh, the corrupting influences of Greek culture um, and, and Roman culture as well, which Rome, you know, bar- came out of Greece culture, Greek culture. And, and, and what happened is they were so powerful that, that the Jews were more Greek. They were, they were emphasized. So, so let's say it's market day and, you know, here's Jacob, the Jew that's going to sell his grain, he's going to sell his wheat and, and, and he sets up his wares. And then here comes this gaudy, you know, Greek farm wagon coming in and it's like wow look at that boy he's got that thing decked out and he's selling stuff for really cheap and it's really cool and all the kids in town run over to the wagon they're like what is this this is so cool man we're never allowed to have anything like this and Jacob's watching that and Jacob's like it ain't right it ain't right and so he gets fired up because he says, first, you're going to eat their stuff. And next, you're going to start worshiping their gods. You're going you're gonna to start hanging out with them. So the, the Pharisees were actually people who got fired up about the Jewish culture being lost in the larger pagan culture around it. And if you, in fact, I think the word is something about separated, being separated. And so the idea was the Pharisees said, we're not just going to float down the river like a dead fish. We are going to stand for God. We're going to stand for his law. And we're going to hold people's feet to the fire that don't do it. So you can imagine Jacob, he's running over to those kids. He's saying, you're not supposed to do this. Now in America, you don't tell your, anybody's kids what to do, not even your own. 
leave them alone. You know, but Jacob, the Pharisees, they didn't mind saying, that's not right. You call yourself a Jew, you should not be eating that. You should not be wearing that. You should not be talking to him. They'd call you out. And they were, they were really energized by strict adherence to God's law. Why? God is right, and all the rest of y'all are wrong. And I'm not afraid to stand up and say it. Now, that, that influence or that energy is, I mean, it's still around today. There are Jews who uh, make sure all of the lights in their house in their house are on before Sabbath, because they are not allowed to make a fire on the Sabbath. So all the lights stay on for the whole forty-eight hours or whatever it is that they do it, and they will not turn them off. <clears throat> they will leave them on, and they will not they will not turn them on if they're not on on the Sabbath. I've heard stories, and you probably have as well, of Hasidic Jews who, and by the way, the Hasidic Jews, are they borrowed that name, I think it was the 17th century, because they wanted to be like the, the Pharisees way back when they started. There are Jews today who will say, hey, um, can you come and push the button on the elevator for me? I can't push the elevator button to go up. And they'll wait there until someone comes along and they'll say, three, please. They, they won't open the door because they, it, that you're doing work on the Sabbath. Even taking your finger and pushing the button is too much work. And there are some, uh, the, uh, some of those here in Toledo. Very concerned. They, they separated themselves. They're more righteous and, and they're ultra concerned about preserving the law from these corrupting influences. I don't know about you. Do you get tired of some of the crazy wild influences in our, in our culture? I do. I don't want my kids thinking that, that, that transitioning from male to female or back is normal or right or even scientific. Uh, there's no science behind that idea of gender. By the way, I do have a question for you. If, if, if it doesn't matter if gender is fluid, why are you so concerned about the particular pronouns that you want me to use? If gender doesn't make any difference at all, why are you concerned about that? All right, so you can, in your heart, you can kind of see, yeah, I, I don't like this idea of we're just all becoming Greeks, we're all becoming Romans. No, I'm a Jew. I'm standing firm on this thing. They said that, in, they said that, that, that there was such a thing as four degrees of separation or four generations of impurity. So here, here's the idea. A lizard being an, uh, an impure animal... He would be considered the father of impurity. Okay? He's like, he's just impurity. A lizard. If you have a lizard in your house, get rid of it. Okay? The Jews would say that for sure. So he, he said he, they said he's the father of impurity. If he touches a cloth, the cloth is now first generation impurity. If the cloth touches a pot, the pot is now second generation impurity. If the pot happens to touch food, it's third generation impurity and so on. Now, the Pharisees, the average Pharisee, uh, was responsible for avoiding the second generation of impurity. But the further up you went in the ranks, the more remote you would get from impurity. So how do I know how holy I am? How many things I haven't touched that have touched other things that have touched other things that have touched other things that have touched other things? It's not enough. I got dirt on my hands. I won't touch anything that ever had dirt on its hands. 
I'll keep pushing and pushing it. It's almost like we're gonna, you know, stop. Where are you supposed to stop at a stop sign? Well, there's typically a white line there. You're supposed to stop there. But the Jews, the Pharisees, would get out with a tape measure and said, No, 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 no. You're a quarter inch on the white line. Now, for you know, for some of us, we don't even stop at the line. We just keep going. Stop sign is like, be careful of traffic. We understand. Okay. We're always very careful, right? But a Jew would say, no way in the world. And then it was like, well, you don't have to stop. And they would keep pushing it like, you better stop further because let's say something happened where you actually got hit by a car behind you and you rolled into the white line. Now you're in big trouble. I mean, literally, they would take it that far. Why? Because they were very concerned. And then it's the, comp- the competition between people. Oh, you're concerned? Oh, I'm even more concerned. I'm concerned about how, the, the, how concerned that, that, that you are not. There's a lot of concern that I have about you. And they just kept matching up and up, 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 up. So he says, I, I, as far as the law is concerned, I'm the strictest. And that's what he calls it in the book of Acts. The strictest sect of our religion. Right Now, I know Christians that are very, very strict, very, very strict. And I know some Christians that, that would look down on those Christians for not being strict enough. And you can keep pushing that, and the Pharisees would. You know, something else that uh, Paul said, I'm a Pharisee, I'm also the, the son of a Pharisee. I was raised in the home of a Pharisee. And I was taught by one of the most famous Pharisees of all time, Gamaliel. By the way, who was said to have been from the tribe of Benjamin? He's like, I'm better than you, in case you're wondering. He says, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Now, we look at that and we say, well, how could that be a good thing? Well, keep in mind that in Deuteronomy 13, if a prophet or a miracle worker encouraged people to go after another god, what was supposed to happen to that prophet? Supposed to be stoned. Supposed to be killed. Paul, before he was called Paul in the, in the Bible, he was also called Saul. He believed that Jesus was a false god. And so he couldn't kill Jesus because Jesus disappeared. I don't know where he went to. But his followers are still here, and they're saying that Jesus is God. We need to stone him. Because they're encouraging people to go after this false god. We need to stone these people. So he wasn't just like, well, we know technically the law says. He's like, if it says it, we're doing it. You know the first martyr of the church, Stephen? You know where they put their robes when they got done stoning him? Put it at the feet of Saul. Saul was going, that's right. It's about time you people got on board with the law. You claim to be law followers... When's the last time you stoned somebody like the law said? I mean, he was serious. And so, so Paul here is writing about his resume. And he's saying, I was willing to go all the way and do what other people who claim to be Jews would not do. I'll give you an example. Now, no one likes no one liked to think about this. But let's say I stood up here and said fasting. Fasting is uh, an injunction. To the believers. And if you say, no, it's not, it's Old Testament. I would say Paul encouraged those who were having a difficult time in their marriage or wanted to seek God for a particular time. He said, give yourselves to prayer and fasting. He said, fasting's oft. So you know what it could become? It could become, how long have you fasted? Well, I fasted more than you. You know what Paul said? I've done everything that any good person 
person that was a Jew should do. I've done it, and I've never stopped doing it. And when I did wrong, here's the part, because he was a human, as touching the righteousness which is of the law, blameless. When I did sin, I offered the sacrifice. I made sure to check off every... It wasn't that he was sinless, but that whatever the law said... So let me ask you this. If you were to speed and the police officer were to pull over, pull you over, and say, I I clocked you going 20 miles over the speed limit, but today I'm going to be gracious, merciful on you, and I'm going to let you go. You know what Paul would say? No, I broke the law. I'll pay the fine. Now you see how crazy he was. Because why? We consider it justice to not have to pay the fine. Paul said it's not justice. If I, if I was speeding, I'm wrong. You know what that means? Even if he wasn't stopped by an officer, he would send in his fine. This man was crazy. <laughs> He's definitely not American. We know that. But, but you see how righteous he was? He's basically saying, my religion is better than yours. My race is better than yours. My, tri- the tri- my tribe within my race is better. The sect that I'm a member of within that tribe is better than yours. And he said, I'm better than the people in my sect. I am better than you. Is it really bragging if you're actually better? You could have bought that t-shirt for Paul. And he would have worn it as a Pharisee. Why? He wasn't trying to be smart, uh, you know, uh, smart aleck. He meant it. Watch what he does in verse 7. Watch what he does with his resume. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, there is no doubt in my mind, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. Now, aren't you glad that they haven't updated this verse in this Bible to a modern language that we actually understand? Verse number eight. Do count them but dung. Now, I want to be, to be careful here, and this is probably a dangerous thing to do, talk about dung in church. But what is, what is it? It is whatever our body can't or won't digest. There's no nutritional value in dung. There's no desire. Nobody wants to go to a waste treatment facility. When it's gone, we, we don't miss it and we don't want it back. Right? He said, the things that were gained to me, I got rid of them. He said, I I don't have any use for them. It's as if they were nothing more than waste that went down the drain and disappeared forever. I got no desire to see it again. He's saying here, if if ritual purity, because here's the thing about, about dung. It comes from somewhere. It doesn't just appear. You know where it comes from? It comes from the stuff that we put in our mouth. Right? It, it, it comes from outside. It is what we decide to ingest. And then our body decides whether or not we actually need it and decides to get rid of it. I want you to think about this. I know it's weird and there's the taboo and all that. You know the reason why it's so weird there's taboo? is because it's a very personal thing. It's not something that we want to talk about or should talk about. 
It's not something that we're glorying in. It's just a natural part. Because, but but it's, a, it's, a, it's an unusual corollary to make. But I want you to follow me. Because it's, it's, it's dead on what he is saying here. He's saying, I've taken all this stuff in. I, anything, the best cuts of meat, the best food, I've taken it all in. And guess what? A lot of it was still waste. It was trash. He said, if, if ritual adherence to the law, if purity is so important and so crucial, why am I left with all this undigested waste? What's the purpose of it? Because even though I'm adhering to the law and I'm watching myself and I'm taking, I still have this feeling that, 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 that I don't need this. It's not helping me. It's still going to end up as completely wasteful. What are you saying? I, I look at what I have done and what I can do, my abilities, my resume. He said it's all worthless. Now, I don't know who started the uh, landfill here in Toledo. But we, with pride, it's you know, the highest elevation here in this area. Just up there, north of Alexis Road. What a beautiful spot it is. I don't, I don't know who started it, but you know why they started it? They didn't start it because it was a, a, they wanted to have a memorial. They didn't start it because they needed to honor someone or had a desire to show someone how important. There's no statues there. There's no plaques there saying, this day, Anno Domini. No. Why? It, nobody wants to think about it. It stinks. And it's only there because you and I have more than we need. You and I can't possibly take care of all we have. We can't use it. And the things that we do have, often we don't take care of. We just get more stuff. You know what Paul is saying here? He's saying that there's a lot of leftover junk after I do my very best. I still can't get any nutritional value out of it. He said... I count those things as done. You know, it's interesting because we sometimes think, well, Paul, of course, you got to look at your old life and you got to see, I was on drugs and I was, a, I, I was a, a, a drunkard and I was a womanizer and I turned my back on all that stuff. And by the way, you should. But can I remind you that Paul didn't have that stuff in his background? Paul's looking back at perfect church attendance, Always gave my tithes, always gave my sacrifices, always helped people, always did everything. If, if, if some have theorized that the rich young ruler who came to Jesus could have been the Apostle Paul, because he said, All these have I kept from my youth up. He, if there was a law, he was following it. Why? He had that kind of crazy energy to just do it. Right? And Paul is turning his back on that. He's turning his back on his superiority. That's what he's giving up. You see, we all know it's bad for you to smoke. Now you could say, well, it's not as bad as a big gulp. I'm not arguing that. But nobody smokes because it's good for them, other than for their nerves, right? So we would all say, well, I don't want to push it. I don't want to smoke. Well, I shouldn't get drunk. That's for sure. I shouldn't do that. And so we say, well, that's bad. Well, what about the things that other people say are good for you? 
Paul said, I turned my back on those things. What things were gain to me? So what I'm showing you here is the rejection of a good resume, not of a bad resume. That is the reason it's so hard for people to come to the point of trusting Christ as their Savior. Because what you're saying, what you're telling me is, there is no chance. There is nothing in my past that's good enough to help me get to heaven. That's what people have a hard time swallowing. Because then if it's like you walk up to, to, to God and say, well, you let me into heaven, um, you're not good enough. I don't know about you, but there's a bunch of other people in line, and they ain't good enough either. That's what I want to say. Like, I'm, I'm one out of ten. If you're putting a law on me, my pharisaical righteousness is going to stand up and say, you better be putting a law on all my siblings, because I'm not the only one. That's the way we are as humans. So if I'm standing in the line and God says, you're not good enough to come to heaven, my first thought is, well, I'm better than, I'm better than people that say they're good enough, I'll tell you that. My self-righteousness starts kicking in. And I'm telling you, if there's anybody that deserved to be at the front of the, of the line of self-righteousness, it was the Apostle Paul. Before he came to Christ, he said, as touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. I'm front of the line. Why? I deserve to be here. Get back. If you want to go chapter and verse, I will with you all day. Get back. Get back. He was in the front of the line deservedly. You know what he said? It wasn't good enough. It wasn't good enough. He said... What things were gained to me, those I counted loss. I want you to look at Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, I want you to see his replacement of his resume. Romans chapter 9, we find in the the Old Testament, Israel had the law, but they kept tripping over the law. They kept trying to be righteous and keep the law, and they keep falling on their face. And in verse 31 of chapter 9, But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. I mean, they had it, they were following after it, they didn't attain to it. Why? Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Sion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him, not it, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. The Jews thought they were tripping over the law. They were actually tripping over him. Why? Because I'm trying to do my best and I keep tripping and falling. And then they want to get mad and say, well, what's going on with this? You know what that rock is? That stone, that stumbling stone, didn't do anything to you. It's just there. Jesus never did anything to hurt you. But he's there. And what you're going to have to deal with and reckon with is whether or not you're better than him. You keep tripping on him. Why? Because he's better than you are. You see, the standard of righteousness that God has is not Paul the Apostle. Although if anybody could do it, it would have been him. The standard of righteousness is Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus Christ never had to offer a sacrifice for sin because he never sinned. Now that is a high bar. If you've already sinned once in your life, you can't be as good as Jesus. 
They're stumbling over this stumbling stone. Look what he says. We see in, in, in Romans chapter 10, look at verse number 2. He said, I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to what? Knowledge. They don't. They're fired up, but they don't know God. They're all excited about it, but they've never, they've never even met God. It's like somebody's like, that's my team, that's my team. And you never even met one person remotely connected with the team. You know, I do the same thing. He said, they have, they're fired up, they're great fans, but they're not involved at all with the core. They don't really know what's going on. They're, they're excited, they got lots of zeal, but no knowledge. He says, why? For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. That was the Apostle Paul. That was Saul of Tarsus on the road. He was going about to establish his own righteousness. He was deathly afraid that there was somebody out there that wasn't following the law. And so on the road to Damascus, he goes. And you know what happens? He trips over the stone of stumbling on his way to Damascus. And he looks up and what does he say? What's the first words that Saul of Tarsus say, says in the Bible? Who art thou, Lord? Who art thou, Lord? He knew the law, but he didn't know the law giver. It's one thing to know the Bible. It's another thing to know the author of the Bible. It's one thing to know that Jesus Christ died and was buried and rose again the third day. It's another thing to believe that he died for you and that he was buried for you and he rose again for you to give you salvation. Those are different things. And it became kind of a theme of Paul's life for the rest of his life. He wanted to know Jesus Christ. Who art thou, Lord? I want to know more about that. I've seen the law, but now I realize I keep... (laughs) It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. I keep getting pushed by somebody that's invisible. And I, who is it? Who keeps poking me? You know who keeps poking you? It's Jesus Christ. He loves you. But he's got to poke you to wake you up. He's got to say something ain't right here. He's got he's to... I don't like being pushed. I really don't like being poked. I think I'd rather get pushed than poked. What is it? It's just that little... You know, spiritually, you might be getting poked this morning. And you might think, oh, it's just superstition. It's just some crazy thing. And everybody is... I don't know what they're doing. But I have a head on my shoulders. And I've been around the block and blah, blah, blah. Listen, if it's an invisible God poking you, you, there's nothing you can do about that. You best just surrender to him. Why? He's not going to hurt you. But he's got to get your attention. And that's what Jesus did to, to Saul. You know what he found out? Verse number 4, Romans 10, 4. He found out Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. No wonder he called it freedom from bondage. No wonder he called it going from darkness to light. Because you realize what a heavy burden that, that law was on him? And he found out that there was an end. The game was done. I don't have to do it anymore. That, shul- that weight on his shoulders came off. And he said, Christ fulfilled the law. Not only did Christ fulfill the law, Christ became the righteousness he was trying to earn. Jesus, the man, the God-man, became his righteousness. So in other words, I don't have to 
worry about doing all this stuff perfectly. All I have to do is follow you. That's exactly. Well, I don't think I could be a Christian. There's so much stuff you got to do and can't do. No, 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 no. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. You don't have to keep a list of rules. You've got to trust in him. Because even in your rule keeping, you're not good enough. Only Jesus is good enough. And if you're trusting him, you can put all your weight on him. And truthfully, he carries you to heaven. What's amazing about it is you don't even have to worry about holding tight because he puts you in Christ. When you come to Jesus, you become a part of Jesus. That's why we believe in eternal life. As long as Jesus is alive, I'm alive. Why? It was never me quitting all my stuff or me keeping a a law that got me into Christ. If it was nothing I could do to get saved, there's nothing I can do to get unsaved. It was a gift that I received from God himself. And here's the problem. Your old nature knows that you're not worthy of it. That's why you feel so guilty. That's why people search the scriptures sometimes looking for ways to prove that you can lose your salvation. Because they know in their heart they're not worthy of it. You're not worthy of it. I'm not worthy of it. But Jesus can make you worthy. He makes you worthy through his righteousness. So now let's look at the regular habit that he had. Going back to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, he says in verse 7, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. That's in the past. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. He's writing from prison. He has suffered the loss of all things. You think his father, if he's alive, the Pharisee, is interested in calling Paul his son? No way in the world. He went from being the, proud, the, the, the pride of his family to being a black sheep. The worst thing you could ever do to our family, Paul. Worshiping a false god? How could you? You're dead to me. And you know, in, in some religions, uh, Islam is one. They will have a literal funeral for people who convert to other religions. I can imagine that if Paul's parents were still alive or his family, I, could, I wouldn't doubt that they had a funeral for him. He said, I've, I've suffered the loss of all things, but it's okay because there's no nutritional value in that anyhow. It didn't get me where I even thought I was at the time. So he says this, I count that. I counted it then and I count it today. He reminded himself, by the way, of this daily because in his flesh, he still was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. In his flesh, he still had been a Pharisee. There were things that he could have boasted about. I've done it. Have you climbed Mount Everest? I have. So stop your yapping. He could have said that. No, I haven't. I'm just saying. But he didn't. He said, I'm not going to glory in my flesh. I want you to go with me to the Old Testament. We're going to begin to wrap this up this morning. In the book of 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18. He said, when I look now at Christ's righteousness compared to the righteousness that I had keeping the law, I abandon every 
shred of confidence that I had in myself, and instead I have opted to wholly depend on the person of Jesus Christ in my life. He is the one that I lean on. So I want you to see here that, that we saw Saul of Tarsus, who was of the tribe of what? Benjamin. He goes and he now puts his allegiance fully behind the son of David, Jesus Christ, who is of the tribe of Judah. It's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And in the Old Testament, we have a, a, a similar story. Because we have here Jonathan in 1 Samuel 18 came to pass... Verse 1, when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul, that the Saul of Jonathan, he was of the tribe of Benjamin, his father was the first king, was knit with the soul of David from the tribe of Judah, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. In verse number 3, verse 4, and Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David and his garments, even to his sword and to his bow and to his girdle. Here we see, just as Paul the Apostle voluntarily says, all those things that were gained to me I've kind of lost so I can know Jesus, Jonathan did the same thing with David. He voluntarily stripped himself of everything that was rightfully his in the flesh and he knit his heart with David's. But here's this daily counting. The, the, the counting that Paul talks about. I counted and I count. It's a daily accounting. Because it's a choice between two things. It's a choice between surrendering what I want, what I have to have, what makes me important. It's giving that up to the son of David. Or it's what Saul refused to do. Look at verse number 6. came to pass as they came when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine. After the victory, after the victory, the women came out of all cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tabrets, with joy, with instruments of music. And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul hath slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. They're singing about the victory that David, the son, uh, the son of Jesse, accomplished. The rightful king of Israel... They're singing about him, and what is his response? Verse 8, And Saul was very wrath, and the saying displeased him, and he said, They have ascribed unto David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed a thousands. And what can he have more but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day and forward. This story here is a picture. The Bible tells us that these things were given to us as in samples to illustrate the life of a Christian is not just saying, thank God, I'm in the kingdom, I'm going to heaven. The life of the, king, of the Christian is daily transferring authority from the tribe of Benjamin and giving it to the rightful king of David. The son of Jesse, the true ruler of Israel. You see, nobody else calls him king. Nobody else thinks that he's the rightful ruler. Saul's our guy. No, but God's already rejected Saul. And he's already anointed David. David is the rightful king. You and I have a responsibility as believers to look at this world in which we live. And everybody says, this is what's important. 
It's sex. It's drugs. It's alcohol. It's money. It's friends. It's you fill in the blank, whatever it might be. That's what's really important. And as believers, we know there is a rightful king. Though no one else acknowledges him, he's the king. And us, as believers, we have an opportunity to say, Lord, nobody else sees you as important, but you're my God. You're my king. I transfer the authority, my robe, my sword. What makes me cool and important, I give it to Jesus Christ. Paul said, I die. He said, I die daily. I count all things but loss. And I count them but dung. Why? I'm more interested in the son of David than I am in my own rule. My own things that would make me important. I'm more interested in him. You see, once you're saved, it's a conscious choice between Jonathan and Saul in that you either love or you resent Jesus Christ. Because as you go in your Christian life, you realize he still has expectations for you. There are still things that he wants to accomplish in your life. But if you become a rival of Jesus Christ... If you resent what he's doing in your life and how he's guiding you, you'll find yourself getting upset. And you'll say, I guess Jesus just wants to take over everything. We can't have any fun, can't do anything. Now you're jealous of Jesus. It's not about what you can't do. It's about who you get to follow. It's about who you get to love. There is none like him. You name the person that you think is cool, and they're going to have a list of faults a mile long when you get past the social media. You couldn't live with them six months without losing your brain. And that applies to you and I, too. But but, but Paul, Paul said, man, I met someone on the road to Damascus who is amazing. In fact, he's the culmination of every good quality in every man, boy, woman, girl across the universe. He is the son of God, Jesus Christ. And he said, I'd rather know him than have anything else in the world. And Paul put his money where his mouth was. Christian, God may not call you to go to jail. He may not call you to say goodbye to all of your family members. But I can promise you this one thing. He's calling you to love him to turn from whatever might be rightfully yours in this world whatever resume you might have whatever promotion might be yours whatever family members you have and value or whatever house or possessions you have and value he's calling you to say god i surrender voluntarily not because the preacher yelled about it but because i love you and i know you're supposed to be in charge i want to follow you more than i want to follow my own american dream I come to you this morning, God, with everything that I have in my hand, saying, Lord, you can have it all. That's what Paul did. That's what you and I are called to do every day. What's worth more to you? Paul wasn't giving up bad things to know Jesus. But in comparison to Jesus, they were bad things. If you had to choose between knowing Christ and having a great reputation... If you had to choose between knowing Christ and being considered smart or cool, you're either willing to give up everything for Jesus or you're giving up Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, 
Let me ask you this. Are you still trying to get to heaven based on your good works? Are you still trying to be good enough to earn heaven? You've got two options. One, die in your sins and go to hell. Or two, trust Jesus Christ and receive his righteousness. If you receive his righteousness, your ticket is stamped for heaven. And you will be eternally a child of God. That's how good his righteousness is. It will never wear out. Let's bow our heads in prayer today.